Um, today we're going to talk about the culture of Christ. We are in the middle of a series, seven weeks long. This is week three. Three is my favorite number. I love it. Um, week three, we're talking about presence. So basically what we did as an eldership team, we sat down and talked about what do we want the culture of our church to look like? And are we doing that? Because often what we want our culture to be like and what our culture is actually like can be different. And I think you look at your families, you look at your home, and you're like, we want these. These are the very important things. We want to parent this way. We want to structure life this way or maybe your business. And then the day-to-day you look and you're like, hmm, they don't totally match up. Maybe some things do, maybe some things don't. But we have to be intentional. And so our intentionality in doing this series is to make sure that we are cultivating a culture that is like Christ. We're not here to just have a church. We're not here to push our agendas. We're here to cultivate what Christ did and is doing and walk that out day to day. So we had a huge long list of things that exemplify who Jesus is. And there was probably a lot more that we could have talked about. We had to narrow it down to seven, which is really hard because Jesus is amazing. Um, but we, we narrowed it down to seven and are going to try to roll all of the other things into these seven things. So the first week, Mark preached on love. Everything out of what we do comes from that place of love. If we're generous, but it's not out of love, it's not really being generous. It's out of, there's probably something self-serving in that. If, um, you know, I love the scriptures that talk about, if you say you love all these people, but you don't really love them with the love of Christ, it's like a clanging symbol. And you're like, ow, that's kind of harsh, but that's, that's the truth. Uh, the second week, last week was generosity. Today I'm going to sp- uh, speak on presence. We have discipleship obedience, which is a hard one, but it's so true. It's so the love language of the Father. We stuck that one towards towards the end, so we could warm you up a little before we get to that one. Power, and then we're going to end on salvation. The week after that is Easter. So we would love for you guys to come every week, really dive into this series with us, and then we'll be uh, headed into the Easter Sunday. So culture of Christ. What do we want our culture here at Impact Rock to be like? What does it look like? What do the scriptures say about that? And like I said, we're not here to push our own agenda or to give you ideas that we think. We're here to tell you what the word says to the best of our ability with prayer and discernment. Um, And and that's what the culture of Impact Rock and honestly the culture of our lives and our families and our businesses and the way we do life should all mimic that, right? So culture. This is the definition of culture. Culture. Culture is made up of the values, beliefs, underlying assumptions, attitudes, and behaviors shared by a group of people. Culture is the behavior that results when a group arrives at a set rules working together. Now, culture happens two ways. It happens intentionally and unintentionally. There's plenty of things that happen unintentionally, and you're like, oh, when I say that, This is what people are hearing. Or when I do that, this makes people feel a certain way. There's definitely unintentional culture. And we're always, as a church, trying to make sure that the things that we do, the things that we say, the things, the ways we we respond to each other are godly and biblical and loving and kind. Because we're human and that doesn't always happen, right? But there's also the other side, which is intentional culture. And so that is what this is about, about really digging in deep to what the Word of God says and being intentional about making sure that those are the things that we are doing. The good news for us, I love the part when it says, when a group arrives at a set of rules of working together. 
We don't have to come up with rules, guys. I know some of us would like to. Not me. Yes, me. Um, we would like to, like, lay it all out and write the rules and write the list. But the good news for us as Christians is it's already laid out in his word. The word of God is powerful. It's living, and it's still, it's still for today. There's still times I read it, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, it just comes alive. And I'm like, that's so amazing. The ways that God can just speak to us through his word. So our set of rules, if you will, according to that definition, our set of guidelines, our set of structure, our backbone, our way of life is in the word of God. Isn't that beautiful? That's that's the beauty of being a Christian. We are a follower of Christ based on his word. We have a roadmap. We have the blueprint. We just have to read it with discernment. We have to read it. We have to take partake of it and then we have to do it and that's often the hard part right we have to listen we have to ponder it and then we get the chance to walk it out so what jesus thinks i want to think what he wants to accomplish i want to accomplish not me only me us as a body us as believers us as not even this little church in erie but the body of christ globally if we're all doing that, we are advancing his kingdom. We are proclaiming what he wants to proclaim. What's his heart? I want to proclaim his heart. What is he thinking? What is he feeling? What does he want to do? That's what I want to do. And as Impact Rock Church, that's what we want to do as a church, right? We want to declare what he is declaring. So what is this whole thing about Jesus? If you have been here one week or if you have been here a thousand weeks, you know one thing. And that's that we love Jesus. We are not about promoting a couple, a mission statement, values, a leadership team, an agenda, um, a certain ministry. We are all about advancing and making known the kingdom of heaven. And his name is Jesus. And it's the name that is above every name. We believe that Jesus is the son of God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit with Virgin Mary and God's anointed one, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do God's kingdom here on earth. We believe that Jesus was a sinless man, that he came in human form, but he was fully God. He was crucified for our sins. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave, and he's living victorious at the right hand of the Father. We believe that one day he's going to return to earth in full glory and power. We believe that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We believe that he is the way the truth, and the life. We believe that he is the only way to the Father. We believe that the Bible is true in every way and that it is the only true guide for our lives. Maybe you're saying, duh, and maybe you're saying, oh, I didn't know that. But the reason I wanted to put all that out there this morning is so that you're perfectly clear on what we believe. Some people say God, some people say Jesus, and depending on your background and depending on all of those things, that could mean different things for different people. This is what we believe, and this is what we believe because this is what we believe the Bible says about him. God made it all about Jesus. He said, this is my son. And if you read through the scriptures, it's amazing. The first time I kept hearing that, God just raves about Jesus. I'm like, okay. He does. All throughout the scriptures, he talks about his son. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He goes on and on about the glory in the son. And then he sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes to point us to Jesus, to bring revelation of who he is. So Mark kicked off the series a couple weeks ago with John 13, 12 through 17. 
I'm just going to read it real quick. So this is taking place. Jesus just had um, the Last Supper with all the disciples, and he had washed their feet. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash each other's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We follow his example. Jesus led. If you read through the New Testament, it's amazing. With his words, he led with his words, but he led by action. Have you ever washed someone's feet? I have. And our feet right now are pretty good. Most of us shower. We have nice shoes. Washing the disciples' feet, that's a whole other thing. Their feet didn't look like our pretty little feet, right? They were gross and dirty and calloused and hard. And and Jesus is leading by example. This is how I want you to live. This is how I want you to serve. So I have some questions we're going to work through this morning. How did Jesus spend time with the Father? What did Jesus gain from being with the Father? Why is it important for Jesus to be with the Father? And how did people feel after being in the presence of Jesus? So when we talk about presence, that's what we're talking about. Being with him. So first one, how did Jesus spend time with the Father? There's absolutely no way you can talk about that without talking about prayer. Jesus spent time with the Father, and if you read through, it's in prayer. So I want to know, well, how did Jesus pray? If I say I'm a Christian, I'm a follower, what, did, what were his prayers like? What did he do? What did that look like? So we know relationships are based on communication. Mark's number one thing in marriage is like communication. And it used to make me mad because I'm like, I know. Honey, communication is number one. And I'm like, I know. But it's so true. If there's a, if there's a wall or a lack in communication... We're, we're doing this. We're backing up. We're, we're going backwards a little bit. We're not keeping that open dialogue. Communication is huge. And how did Jesus communicate to the Father? In prayer. So he did many things. He prayed for others. And I'm just going to rattle off scriptures. We're not going to read them all. In Matthew 19:13, he prayed for the children. In John 17:9, he prayed specifically for his disciples. So he prayed for other people. He prayed for himself. In John 17, 1 through 5, he was praying for God to glorify him so that he may glorify God. So he was praying for himself. He prayed for all the believers, which is me and you. In John 17, verse 20 through 26, he prayed that we would know the Father, that we would know his love, and we would be united with him. I love this scripture because two things are happening. He's connecting with God. He's communicating. He's dialoguing. He's opening up his heart. And he's also praying that we would do the same. Lord, all these believers that are yet to come, would you grab a hold of their hearts? Would you connect them? Could they be united with you? Could you share your love with them? He prayed with others. In Luke 9, 28, Jesus took Peter, John, and James on the mountain with him to pray. There's power in prayer and joining hands and praying. Jesus prayed alone. 
And there's lots of scriptures on this one. Luke 5, Luke 5, 16 says Jesus withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. Luke 6, 12 said he went to the mountains to pray. And Jesus also taught us to pray alone in Matthew 6, 6. He says, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and get into that secret place with God. So again, he was, he was teaching us how to pray. Jesus prayed in nature, which I love this one, especially living here, right? We can just go to the mountains and, and find a quiet spot. Um, in Luke 5 and Luke 6, he went to the wilderness and he went to the mountains to pray. Jesus prayed short prayers and long prayers. And I know that sounds silly, but how many people do we know? It's like this formulated thing. You have to say this or you have to do that or you have to be on your knees or you can all... No. Jesus prayed all different ways. The Lord's prayer was a very succinct. He was showing us how to pray. It was a very short, intentional prayer. And then there was a time in Luke... Uh, 6.12, he prayed through the night, it said. How many times have you prayed through the night? You know, there's all sorts of different ways to pray. Luke 5.16 said, he himself often withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. So he prayed often. Jesus prayed heartfelt prayers. John 17.20-26. He was so passionate and so sincere in her, his prayers he wanted a connection between the people and his Father. Isn't that the reason Jesus came? To connect us back to the Father heart of God. That's the whole reason that he came. And I love that that comes out in his heartfelt prayers. And we always have taught the kids and in children's ministry and raised our kids, when you're angry, you can go to God. He's not scared of our anger. He's not scared of our hurt. He's not scared when we don't understand I think sometimes we think, well, if it's not going to be this pretty little prayer, you know, I don't want to offend God, or I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, or, you know what, God knows our hearts, and he knows when we're hurting, and he knows when we're grieving, and when we're angry, and he's not scared of that. When your kids get angry at you, are you like, oh my gosh, I hope they still love me, or I hope our relationship's okay? You're like, no, we're going to work through this, buddy. It's going to be fine. I understand you're angry. It's okay. Right? There's that relationship there. Jesus taught us how to pray in Luke 18. He was persistent in prayer. He was saying, do not lose heart. Continue to pray. Keep praying. Do not lose heart. Which is easy to do when you pray and nothing happens. And you pray and nothing happens. And you pray and nothing happens. But he wants to encourage us. Be persistent in prayer. God is faithful. In Matthew 5.44, we don't like these, but this says, pray for those who persecute you. Pray for your enemies. And I love how he demonstrated this one. In Luke 22, he says, forgive them because they know not what they do. Here he is getting crucified on the cross. He's still communicating with the Father, but he's not... He's not praying things that I would be praying, like, what the heck are you doing? Do you not see me here? Do you not see me bleeding? All these people mocking me and spitting on me. That's what I would be praying. Forgive them. They do not know what they do. If it's your will. He didn't like it. His prayers were saying, I don't like this. If there's any other way to pass this cup, but your will be done. If this is the way, if this is not what needs to be done, Lord, your will, but be, be done, not mine, right? 
So Jesus connected with the Father. He was in constant communication. It was real and it was raw, and that's what I love. He was human and he was God, and he was real. And I love that. So can we say the same? Are we connected to the Father? Are we praying those honest prayers? Are we praying at all? Are we telling our friends, I'll pray for you. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm going to pray for you. And then we don't pray. Are we getting before the Lord? And I don't want to make this some heavy thing. Do you get up an hour before your day? and You do it how you do it. It might be in your car in traffic. It might be at night. It might be on your knees. It might be while you're out at the soccer field. It might be... There could be a million, bazillion, gazillion ways that you pray. Are you praying? I can tell in my walk with the Lord when I'm not praying and I'm not in connection with him. There's, I feel a little bit more empty. I feel a little bit more disconnected. I feel a little bit more tired. I feel a little bit more angry at my kids or less patient or less loving or whatever. And it's not about what he's doing or not doing. It's about me. It's about my heart. It's about that connection of me connecting with him. Does that make sense? What did Jesus gain from being with the Father? I love the story. Do you remember the story when Jesus was about 12 years old? The story is found in Luke, Luke 2. His parents went to Jerusalem, Jerusalem every year for the feast of the Passover. This particular year, when it was over and it was finished, they all, and the way I'm visioning it is kind of a caravan of them. They all leave, right? They're all headed back home. So they leave Jerusalem They traveled for an entire day. Do you know this story? They traveled for an entire day. And Mary and Joseph are like, hmm, where's Jesus? Maybe we're just helicopter parents and we know where our kids are every second. We're tracking them and we know where they are. A whole day, people! That makes me feel better as a parent. I'm just saying. So they travel for a whole day. And one of them realizes, huh, I don't think I've seen Jesus in the last 24 hours. So they start asking around to their relatives and acquaintances, have you seen Jesus? Have you seen, Je- have you seen my son, my 12-year-old son that I can't find? And everyone's like, nope, I haven't seen him. So they travel a day back in hopes of finding him. So they get back to Jerusalem and they're finding him. And it says, after three days, after three, my daughter's 12. And yes, she's a girl. But if she was missing for three days, I'd be freaking out. They come back after three days. They finally find Jesus. And where did they find him? In the temple with his father. So they found him sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking him questions. A 12-year-old asking the religious leaders questions. And his mom said to him, Son, Why have you done this to us? Your father and I have sought you anxiously. I wouldn't be that kind. And maybe they just left some words out. I don't know. But I'd be like, oh my gosh! I'd be freaking out. I'd be shaking a child at that point. But Jesus was sitting there. And his reply to his mother was, Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? He wanted to be about his father's business. Should he have been with his parents? Probably. I don't really know. But he was Jesus, and he wanted to be in that place. He wanted his questions answered. He was seeking knowledge and understanding, and he was asking them questions, but he wanted to be with his father. He began to sense the calling and the urging 
to be with his father, that the transition from childhood to adulthood, from the transition from the childish ways to living a life of ministry and calling and purpose and destiny for the entire world began to take place. So Jesus learned and grew in the context of relationship of abiding in the Father's love and presence. I want to read that again. Jesus learned and grew. Does that encourage you? There's three or four scriptures, and I cut them out of my sermon because this is getting a little lengthy. But talking about how Jesus grew and he matured, and that's so encouraging to me because sometimes I feel like I'm not growing and I'm not maturing and I'm like going around the same tree over and over wondering why I can't seem to get out of the same habits or, or things that keep me stuck. But it says he learned and he grew. And he did that in the context of relationship, of love, and being in the presence of his Father. And we can do the same thing. His time with the Father was the most important thing to him. That one stings a little. His time with his Father was the single most important thing to his, to his life. So when I ask myself, what's what's the most important thing in my life? Is it that? Is it being with Jesus? Is it spending time with him? Is it is it our jobs? Is it our marriages? Is it our kids? Is it our iPads? Is it technology? Is it our sports? Is it our football or our TV or our clothes or what people think about us? I mean, it goes on and on, right? What is the, What is the most important thing? Or is it ourselves? That's a trap too, right? Especially in this culture, everything's about me, 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 me. Make me happy. Make me feel good. Don't offend me. It's all about me. The most important thing is him and being in his presence. And in that place, everything flows. Whatever the Father was about, Jesus was about that. In John 8, 28, it says, I am he, I do nothing, this is Jesus speaking, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak on these things. He abided in God continually. He lived a life of love and sub- submission to the Father. He was the ultimate sacrifice, right? He laid down his life. Sometimes I can't lay down an hour. He laid down his life. John 15, 1 through 5. You guys all know this, but it's about the vine. He says, Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And we often don't remember that. When God starts pruning, working in our lives, like, oh, I'm being punished. I'm being, you know, I must be doing something wrong that hurts. And God's doing all this stuff in my life. And why is this so hard? And we want to run the other way when actually we should press in because God is doing something. Because it says that when he does that, our lives begin to bear even more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Isn't that interesting? A branch cannot bear fruit by itself. We cannot bear fruit on our own. And we try. And we try really hard. Right? If I just strive harder, if I just do better, if I just... We're not created to bear fruit on our own, guys. 
We're just not. You can try. I've tried. It doesn't work. I end up failing every time. I fall short every time. Because he's the source. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. And that actually, I don't think we think that it brings freedom, but that actually brings freedom, that we can do nothing without him. That brings life and freedom. So I love that Jesus didn't have to push out fruit. He didn't have to make it happen. Who was he connected to? He was connected to the Father. And because of that relationship, because of that love, because of that pouring in, that time that he spent hearing his voice, connecting with him, talking to him, hearing him, the fruit just automatically came out. Can we do that? Can we get in his presence and be with him? Even the busyness of being at work and being here and being at school and turning in assignments and all the things that we do, there's still that constant connection. I think we try to segregate it. Like, well, when I spend time with God, I, I'm on my knees here. Or I'm sitting at my thing. Or I have my Bible open. And we try to do this. It's not. It's a constant relationship. It's a constant talking. It's a constant communicating, right? A communion. And then the fruit comes. Because we're not trying to create the fruit. We're just talking to him and the fruit's coming. Next question. Why was it important to Jesus to be with the Father? I was thinking about this. Mark and I were talking about this yesterday. Yeah, I think we're so, we're such a stressful people, aren't we? We're stressed out. Our kids are stressed out. Like, I don't remember being stressed as a kid. I remember having a test, you know, and that was kind of stressful. Or if, like, there was some drama at school, that was kind of stressful. I don't remember an overall feeling of being stressed. Now, that might be different for everybody, but I think kids today are stressed. My kids started being stressed when they were little, and I'm like, what do you mean? I'm so stressed. I'm like, you're 10. Go play in the dirt. Why are you stressed? But we just... We, we are a stressful culture, right? There's all these pressures and all these things. So I was thinking about Jesus, and I said, Jesus, how did you deal with pressure and stress? Because surely you had some pressures and stress, right? And then I began to think about what his life actually looked like. And I remembered all of these little stories, like the time he was sharing and someone needed to be healed and they couldn't get to Jesus so they climbed on top of the roof and pulled back the roof and had the sick guy on the bed and and put it down through the roof so Jesus could heal him no pressure no pressure Jesus I'm just going to lower my buddy down who's going to die if you don't do anything through the roof a little stressful he had religious and governmental leaders questioning everything he said watching his every move kiddos you think your parents are watching you How would you like everybody watching you like they watched Jesus? He had a very sick woman push through the crowds just to touch the hem of his garment. It's a beautiful story. But that's everywhere you're going. Someone is trying to get to you to heal them. He had a ruler of a synagogue begging him to raise his daughter from the dead. And initially she was just really sick. And he's, the guy's like, I know that you can heal my daughter. Please. He was begging. 
And then another guy walks in and says, actually, she's gone. So he proceeded to Jesus. I know you can heal my daughter. She's dead. She's gone. He did not pull back. He knew who Jesus was. Then he had Satan tempting him and harassing him and questioning his identity, taunting him for 40 days. And we have an element of that, right? He attacks us. He taunts us. He harasses us. He lies to us. So all of those stories, and there's many, many more. You're probably thinking of a bunch of them as we're sitting here this morning. So all of that, but not to mention that the entire weight of all humanity was on his shoulders. When the sentence was there and he was going to be crucified, he bore the weight of my sin and your sin and your sin and your sin and your sin. Of all of humanity, the weight, the weight of my sin, it would be enough. All of humanity, the weight of that was on his shoulders. And yet he loved and he was kind and he was forgiving. And yes, he was fully God, but he was also fully man. And that encourages me because he says that we could do this, not in our own strength, but it's that connection piece, guys. It's that presence, being in his presence. That's the reason Jesus could do this because he was connected to the Father. And he said, if your will be done, your will be done. Up until that last moment when he took his last breath, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt the weight of emptiness, the weight of nothingness. But he knew that there was a bigger purpose, and he trusted. Don't you think all those hours in the presence of the Father, at that moment when he felt the lack of his presence, he knew, I have been with him. I know his heart. He has not abandoned me. So, how did people feel after being in the presence of Jesus? I let you guys need to just I just have been going through the New Testament reading those stories. Some of you when you read them growing up and you start reading through and you're like, "Oh yeah," and it's kind of in a different context when you're on the other end of it and you're my age and you're reading them than when you're little. But Zacchaeus was a wee little man. You know you're singing the song in your head. Found in Luke 19, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and he was very rich. He was both a social outcast and a religious outcast because he was cooperating with the Roman government. So nobody liked this guy, little Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus heard that Jesus was passing through. And you know what little Zacchaeus did. He wanted to see Jesus. And the wee little man climbed the sycamore tree to see if he could see Jesus passing through. When Jesus came by, he looked up and saw him and said, I want to stay at your house. And up until this point, I had never thought about the fact that Zacchaeus didn't necessarily want to be seen. He wasn't like the woman pushing through the crowd, grabbing or coming down through the roof. He just wanted to see him. So he climbed a tree and he's like, I'm the tax collector. Nobody likes me, but I still just want to take a peek. I just want to see Jesus. And so he's up in this little tree, this wee little man, And Jesus is walking by and sees him. 
And what I love about that analogy and that story is that's us. He sees us. Regardless of where we're at, that wee little man, the wee little Kara, the wee little person, however we feel, we're unworthy, disgusting, sinful, fine, however we feel, he sees you. So he saw Zacchaeus, and he stayed at his house, and of course all the people were complaining. Jesus, why would you stay at a sinner's house? It's ridiculous. Do you know who that is? And that's what Jesus said. He said, I want to stay in that house. How did Zacchaeus feel knowing that Jesus saw him? And I don't think Jesus just saw him as a person. He saw into his heart. He saw into that pain. He saw into the rejection that Zacchaeus lived with every day. In John 4, there's a story about the woman at the well. It was a Samaritan woman who meets Jesus at this well. She's doing what she always does. She's going to get water. Jesus begins to tell her about the living water and eternal life. He tells her about the personal details of her life, and I love that. He starts saying, "Um, where's your husband? And she's like, I don't have a husband. He's like, I know, you had a whole bunch of them. And he starts like telling her her life story, and she's like, is this guy at the well? I come here all the time. Who is this dude? So he reveals to her who he is. She runs back to the town and tells everyone she knows about what had happened to her. How did she feel about being in his presence? Do you think her life was changed forever? He saw her. He spoke to her. He valued her. I imagine She had purpose and hope for the first time in a long time. She was an outcast. She had lots of husbands. People didn't like her. The man at the pool of Bethesda in John 5, he had an infirmity for 38 years. I had shingles this summer for a couple months, and I thought I was going to die. He had a sickness, horrible sickness, for 38 years. So he's laying by the pool of Bethesda, and the angel would come down and stir the waters, And if you could just be the first one to get in the water, you would be healed. The problem is he's so sick he can't get down there. So he's laying on the steps in hopes that somebody will put him in the water after the angel stirs it so he can be healed. So Jesus walks by and sees him laying there. And he asks him, do you want to be made well? The man exclaimed that he had no one to put him into the water. Jesus told him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And that's what he did. He rose, he picked up his bed, and he was healed. How do you think he felt after being with Jesus? Jesus washing the feet of the disciples in John 13. We talked about this a little bit before. The Messiah, the King of Kings. They were with him and did life with him, and they were chosen by him. And he washed their feet. Can you imagine sitting there? having Jesus wash your feet, and the whole time you're thinking, this is backwards, this is backwards. I'm not worthy. I should be washing your feet. How did they feel? The last example is in Luke 7, the sinful woman who was forgiven. A woman in the city who was a sinner was found, found out that Jesus was at a Pharisee's house. So again, she's one of those people who's like, there's Jesus, I'm going. I'm going to see him. I'm going to touch him. I'm going to do something. So she gets an alabaster box with fragrant oil and got to where he was. 
She stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. And then she wiped her tears with her hair. She kissed the feet of Jesus and anointed them with the oil that she had in the box. This speaks to me because I feel like this woman had nothing. She washed his feet with her tears. She didn't come with a basin of warm water or a nice, luxurious towel. She didn't come with expensive presents or expensive gifts. She just came. And she came with her heart going, You are the Messiah. You are Jesus. What could I possibly do? And she washed his feet. And with a little bit of fragrant oil that she had, she anointed his feet. Jesus was moved by her faith and her love, and he forgave her of all her sins. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around because we only know the grace of God, most of us. We only know that he does. He forgives our sins, and we've experienced that. Before this, these people didn't have that. Do you remember the first time Jesus said, I forgive you of your sins? And the Pharisees were like, oh my God, you think you forgive sins? Who do you think? That was crazy. We can't wrap our minds around that because we've known, we've heard, we've experienced his forgiveness. So he forgives her of all her sins. There was a different woman that walked into that room than the woman who walked out that day. Brandon, would you come on up? So how do you feel after being in the presence of Jesus? Maybe you've been there a million times and maybe you're like, I don't know. I don't really know what that's like. Have you encountered him, his presence? Have you experienced times when you've been with him and you leave different like that woman? When you went into his presence broken or hurting or angry or tired or weary and you left with hope or purpose. You left with healing. You left with a heart full of joy. Were you like Zacchaeus, feeling average, overlooked, and despised? Did Jesus see you right where you were? Did he see you, and were you important? I know for me, he has saved me from myself. More times than not, I feel not good enough. I don't measure up. I feel average I feel like eh, what does it matter I'm just one person but that's not how God sees us he says he chose us I think sometimes we're like I chose God and it's this great thing which we did but he chose us first he chose you first because he loved you and he loves you have you felt devalued and worthless like the woman at the well And Jesus spoke right to your situation. Declaring purpose and establishing hope and value over you. Isn't that powerful when you feel like you're not valued and somebody speaks value over you and you hear the voice of God through scripture or through a friend and you're like, ah, and it resonates because you're like, I don't really want to believe it, but somehow I, that's true. That's truth. You're speaking truth. He does love me. 
because being in his presence brought you healing. Maybe you had an ailment, a sickness, and God has brought you healing. Logan shared a testimony not too long ago, but an amazing healing. He's going to lose his arm. And God healed him. Have you felt like the disciples and felt humbled that Jesus would choose you? I think this is the one that gets me the most. He chooses us. We don't deserve it, you guys. I don't care how good we are. We don't deserve it. He's the Savior of the world. And he doesn't just choose us once. He chooses us every minute of every day. He's pursuing us. He's captivating us. He's drawing us in. He's saying, come. Come to the altar. Come to the table. Come to my presence. I choose you. On our best day, he chooses us. On our worst day, he chooses us. I always teach this to my kids. On their worst day, when they blow it in every sense of the word, God chooses them and he loves them the same on that day than when they're nailing it. Same with me on my worst day, when I just want to crawl in a hole and pretend that the day didn't happen. Take two. He loves me the same that day as my best day. Like the woman with the alabaster box, have you ever felt desperate and in need of a miracle? Jesus sees you. He sees your heart and he's calling you and you are not alone. Would you mind just standing with me? I'd just like to pray over us this morning. The whole point of this morning's message is being in his presence. And guys, the cool thing is he created us all different. Some of you might get out of canvas and you might want to paint. You don't want me painting anything because you're going to be like, wow, that five-year-old did a great job. You're like, "Mm, that was me. But you might be creative. You might love to draw. You might love to paint. You might like to take pictures. And that might be your way of connecting with God. You might like to talk. And so maybe your way is talking to God and talking and talking and listening and talking. Maybe your way is going for a run and just letting him speak to you as you run. There are a million ways to connect with God. And that's the beauty of it. He knows you, and you know how you're made. Do that. Don't make it this, I have to do this in the morning, and if I don't, throw that all out the window. Connect with the Father. Connect with Jesus. Get in his presence. This creates a culture of Christ, just as Christ connected with his Father. It keeps us in connection, and guess what happens after that? There's fruit. There's kindness, there's joy, there's peace, there's hope, there's liberty, there's freedom, there's friendship, there's connection, there's family. The fruit happens when we're in connection with him. Amen.